Welcome everyone to the RJOS podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger, and I'm your host. On this episode, we've got a great interview with Dr. Colleen Sabatini. Dr. Sabatini is the Director of Global Surgery and Health Equity for the Division of Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. As global health is becoming more and more popular, it was amazing to speak to Dr. Sabatini about the work she has done and her thoughts about medical missions. I had such a great time speaking with Dr. Sabatini, and I'm very excited about our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the RJOS podcast with Dr. Colleen Sabatini. Dr. Colleen Sabatini, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast and just thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And so I would like to start with an introduction to who you are. And so can you describe your background, where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, and your post-fellowship years? Absolutely. Um, So I'm going to take it back a little bit further. I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. My family's East Coast uh, to begin with, but then I moved to Colorado when I was one. And I grew up in Colorado. Um, And when it was time to go to college, I decided that I wanted to be a marine biologist. And I wanted to go where no one in my family had ever gone before, which was California. Uh, And so (laughs) I moved to the great state of California for undergrad. And I went to UC San Diego. And it was during my time in San Diego that I think, like for most of us in college, we start to really learn who we are as people and what we really want to do and be in the world. Um, And for me, then I started fundamentally shifting away from the care of fish to the care of people um, and was really active in a lot of um, social justice work when I was in college. And I ultimately decided to go into public health. Um, And so when I finished at uh, UC San Diego, I actually started working in public health because that was necessary in order to get into the good public health programs in the United States was some full-time paid work experience in the field. And so I had the phenomenal opportunity to spend two years working in public health um, in the county of San Diego. And it was actually during that experience that I decided um, to go to medical school. I had a wonderful mentor by the name of Robert Ross. He's a pediatrician who now um, is with the California Endowment. And he was just a phenomenal mentor to me. And so I realized that going to medical school would allow me to affect greater change in the public health work that I was interested in. And so I, com- I applied to combined MD MPH programs and had the opportunity to move to Boston and attend Harvard, uh, where I was at both the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health uh, and was in the combined program there. Um, it was during that time that I uh, decided to go into orthopedic surgery. And I had... Mm-hmm. Um, the phenomenal opportunity to stay then at my home institution at the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Surgery Residency Program. Mm -hmm. And after 10 years of being in Boston, um, I decided I didn't want to shovel any more snow for a while. So I um, (laughs) moved to Los Angeles and I had the wonderful honor of doing my pediatric orthopedic fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles Mm -hmm. with Dave Skaggs, Fern Tolo, Jen Weiss, and the incredible crew there. And then I finished in 2010, and I took a job at UC San Francisco. Um, And I first spent two years at the uh, Children's Hospital there in San Francisco, and then in 2012 had the opportunity to move over to the Children's Hospital of Oakland, as UCSF was affiliating with Oakland. Um, And I became the chief of pediatric orthopedics at Children's Hospital of Oakland in 2012. 
um, and wow. stayed in that role for the next seven years. Um, oh. And now I am uh, I'm at Children's Hospital of Oakland, which I completely love um, and have a great team of, you know, colleagues that I work with there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. I do want to go into that first moment that you knew you wanted to do orthopedic surgery. Can you kind of expand on what it really was that made you want to do ortho? Yeah. Um, so I was definitely a latecomer to orthopedic surgery. I think there's some people who come out the womb saying that they're going to be an orthopedic surgeon and other people, you know, when they're you know, pretty young in their lives, or at least going into medical school that think they want to do orthopedics. Um, that was actually not me. I, I went to medical school thinking that my career would be in community and global health. And right. I really thought, therefore, that I was going to do like med teeds or infectious disease or something more on the medical side that had historically had a greater global and public health presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, my first two years of medical school, I when people would say, hey, what do you think you want to do? I'd have like this, oh, I might do this, I might do this, but I'm definitely not going to be a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so darn it all, if it wasn't that when I started my clinical rotations and I did my surgery rotation, I absolutely loved it. Um, mm-hmm. I loved being in the OR. I loved being a part of this team that had the singular focus on making this patient better. I right. loved the idea of fixing problems um, mm-hmm. as opposed to talking about them a lot. Um, and so I really, I had never done anything in surgery before, which is why I think I didn't, I didn't have it on my list of possibilities. And I also didn't think of surgery as being something that was amenable to public health and global health activism and principles. And so that's Mm -hmm. why I was originally not enthusiastic about it. But then once I was in the OR and I was part of that, um, I was really inspired. And then I think what's really important is that I went to a medical school that actually required orthopedics. So it was part of our general surgery rotation that Mm -hmm. we did two weeks of orthopedic surgery. And that's why I'm a huge advocate for making sure that our our clinical rotations include exposure to the surgical subspecialties. Because I think I am definitely a person that would not have gone into orthopedics had I not had to do orthopedics. And it was phenomenal. I had two weeks of pediatric orthopedics at Children's Hospital of Boston. And it was absolutely, it was absolutely life changing. Um, And I think that there was probably two things there that really solidified for me something like this, this was the field for me. And, you know, I spent, um, I really love longitudinal care of patients, but I also like Mm -hmm. fixing things. And I think that's the beautiful combination of pediatric orthopedics. So I did like one half day I spent with, um, you know, with John Hall, who's just, a, you know, an amazing pillar of pediatric orthopedics. And I was seeing mm-hmm. patients with him in clinic um, just before he retired, really. Um, you know, in each room we went into, he was like, oh, this is so-and-so. I met her when I was on call and she was born and I got called to take care of her. And then you walk in the room and it's like a 26-year-old woman or a, you know, an 18-year-old patient or a 30-year-old right. guy who he's been taking care of, you know, his whole life. And I think for me, that was really to see the impact that he had had on their lives was just absolutely inspiring. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it was just a combination of, of all of those, those things. Um, and then I really had to take a step back and do a lot of soul searching and thinking about um, orthopedics because it wasn't what I had planned to do. Um, right. And so I really then had to recognize that there was a need for orthopedic surgeons who were interested in public and global health, um, mm-hmm. given that there's a huge burden of unmet need for, you know, in terms of musculoskeletal st- treatment, both in the United States and throughout the world. 
And so um, that's, I think, why I, I ultimately went into orthopedics. I both found it absolutely like wonderfully stimulating intellectually, but also that there was a, a large need for orthopedic oriented people who were interested in looking at issues of access and care around the world. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. And I know we've touched on pediatric orthopedics. And so I was wondering yeah. if you can further tell us why it is like, what is it about pediatric orthopedics that made you want to subspecialize into PD ortho? Yeah, I think I really just love working with kids and in and, and adolescents. I, I like the challenge actually of like, getting them to open up to you and trust you. Um, mm-hmm. And I like having Star Wars toys, maybe too. Um, oh, well done. Well and, done. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you always got to have your Yoda, the Lego light to make the kids oh, like you better. Um, Baby and I Yoda. Think, exactly. I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of congenital conditions that we get to follow throughout growth. And so you really get to see your patients grow and develop and change over time. And it's really awesome to be a part of their life in that way and the honor of being able to take care of them and, and help them through that growth and development. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that pediatric orthopedic surgeons really have a significant impact on the life of a child, right? So we take care of something and they benefit from that from their, for their whole life, right? So it really has right. a lifelong impact. And then I think finally, just in pediatric orthopedics, um, for me, just because my motivation is, is one of, of more like health equity and global health, is that um, there's a great need for pediatric musculoskeletal care. So if you look at the, the unmet burden of disease, um, most of that is in children and a huge part of that is musculoskeletal. So I, I hmm. think that when you think about where your skills and resources are best utilized, pediatric orthopedics is, is one of those greatest needs. So, um, and then I love the simplicity of some of the work that we do as pediatric orthopedic surgeons, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's just, you know, we can, we can fix things so readily with a cast or a simple close reduction and pinning. Um, and I, and I like that, um, that sort of, yeah, the simplicity of, of being able to fix a major problem and, and it's, you know, it's taken care of. So I love yeah. that. Oh, that's fantastic. And what's funny is that on this podcast season, I've spoken to a lot of Pods, And so mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you some of the same questions I asked them. And so as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, what is your favorite condition to treat and why? Yeah, so clubfoot. Uh, mm-hmm. Clubfoot is definitely my favorite condition to treat because if untreated, it can cause significant disability. Um, mm-hmm. And the families you know, the families can come in really overwhelmed and it's really awesome to be able to sit there and look them in the eye and say, we can mm-hmm. fix this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be able to take a foot that is going completely the wrong direction and through a series of like elegant little casts and a very small surgery, you can make that foot functional and it's normal appearing and it's just, it's awesome. Um, and then we get to follow that kid through their life. You know, sometimes we have to do a little, you know, a few casts here and there or another small surgery to, to make their foot better balanced. But, um, for the most part, they do really well. And so you take what would be in a place that doesn't have treatment, a totally debilitating, um, and socially stigmatizing condition and we fix it so simply. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I love, I love treating club foot. That's awesome. What is your favorite surgical procedure? Uh, yes. Yeah, so this is hard, I think, right? Because we all love we all love variety. That's why a lot of us go into pediatric orthopedics because it's such a varied mm-hmm. field. You know, you're doing you're operating all over the body. You're doing all all different procedures. Um, right. 
and so I think for me, I have two. And, and again, one is on the club foot front. And I think that, you know, I have to say that the simplest surgery that I do is, of course, a heel cord tenotomy for babies mm-hmm. with club foot. It's a tiny little procedure. Oftentimes, we don't even have to put the child under anesthesia, right? We do the majority of them awake with just a little bit of local anesthesia. But with mm-hmm. that tiny little surgery, you complete the correction of a deformity um, that then gives the child a normal foot to walk on for the rest of their life. So it's just, right. it's when you when you look at like, it's so simple, yet it's so life-changing um, mm-hmm. that I love it. And so, and then I really also love trauma surgery. And so anything in the trauma realm, I really enjoy surgically. Um, mm-hmm. But I think my favorite is probably flexible nail fixation of a femur fracture. Because I think it's awesome to be able to fix the largest bone in the body with two very small incisions just above the yes. level of the knee. You use the natural anatomy of the bone's intermedullary canal to establish fixation. You mm-hmm. get the fracture reduced via closed means, you know, which is a right. kind of a fun challenge to get the two pieces to line up and get those nails mm-hmm. to pass. And then with that simple intervention, the kid, you know, heals up and goes back to their normal life. And you take right. what would be like a huge injury and, and you fix it so simply. So again, I think those you kind of see a theme, I guess, between those two two surgeries that I that I yes. just really enjoy. No, I absolutely love femoral nails. Like that, literally, yep. it's just so bizarre. Where you have <laughs> literally the largest bone in the body, and then with just smaller incisions, you're able to just yep. throw a nail down, and then yep. you're like, all right, you can walk after yep. the surgery. Oh, yeah, so cool. It's pretty great. Uh, yep. I know, fantastic. I do want to talk about what makes you, Dr. Sabatini, unique, and that is your mm. passion for global health. Uh, you are currently the director of global surgery and health equity for the division of pediatric orthopedic surgery. And so I do want to talk about what inspired your passion for global health. Yeah. Um, so I, I think basically I've been passionate about health, health equity and justice since I was a teenager. Um, and I think mm-hmm. my consciousness really started when I was about 13. And I volunteered right. for a short time at a summer camp for the children of migrant farm workers near the town that I lived. Um, oh. And I, I think that was really my first exposure as a white kid to social inequity, disparities in access to health and education and basic resources like running water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I when I when I've like looked back on my past, and I like I talked to my mom about, you know, this sometime some years ago um, when I was trying to figure out where I came from, um, you know, <laughs> she would say that that experience for me was a really transformative experience. Um, and after that, I really started to do a lot of reading about like real American history and civil rights issues in the United States. I really started to educate myself um, and became very interested in like the greater world around me and learning the history and right. of other countries and like staying up on current events beyond just like my realm um, mm-hmm. where I was growing up. And so then in college, I found that I was, you know, very active in a lot of social justice work. And I had this, you know, strong desire to work in the health and health equity space. And that's what mm-hmm. led me to public health and then to medicine. So then when I became interested in orthopedics, it was really within this framework of wanting to address the disparities that exist in the world in terms of access to care, access to resources. Mm -hmm. Um, Because really like a child with a congenital anomaly or like a simple supracondylar fracture should have access to treatment no matter what country they are born into, right? And so Mm -hmm. for me, that's my my main motivation to to be involved in global health because I think fundamentally I'm driven by, you know, a desire for for health equity and for children around the world to have access to care um, that so 
so many in our country do benefit from, but not all, right? We have we have our right. own problems here in the United States as well. So, mm-hmm. and that's where that's where you know the health equity aspect of it is not just um, not just outside of the United States, but definitely within the United States as well. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah, so true, so true. Can you please take a moment to humble brag about your accomplishments, both on the fronts of global health as well as health equity? Yeah. Um, um, I know it's I not something that... that we do all the time, but I think it's very important. Yeah, I just turned red. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I have a lot of work to do before I feel like I have any right to humble brag about anything. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, first and foremost, I'm, I'm, proud of the teaching efforts that I've been involved in. Um, mm-hmm. So both the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America, the core committee, so the Committee on Children's um, Orthopedics and Underserved Regions, mm-hmm. I've been very involved in CORE and through CORE have done um, some some teaching outreach work. Um, and also through my home institution, UCSF's Institute for Global Orthopedics and Traumatology. So I have the opportunity mm-hmm. to to teach um, and collaborate in Nepal, in the Philippines, in Uganda, right. and in India. Um, I did have the honor for three years to serve as the chair of the core committee for POSNA, and through that work really worked wow. to try to create greater collaborations of pediatric orthopedic surgeons interested in doing global surgery work and setting up courses in different countries um, to encourage mm-hmm. that educational collaboration that's so important between you know our you know the surgeons here in the United States and surgeons around the world. Um, I was able to serve for four years on the International Committee of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and am now a chair of the International Committee of the Academy. And so through that work, really trying to bring. Um, again, foster greater collaboration amongst members of our international societies around the world with the academy mm-hmm. and foster that, you know, sort of um, facilitate, I guess I should say, um, greater interaction and learning, uh, mutual learning between us. Um, right. And then I think, you know, I'm probably most proud and, and, and passionate about my work in Uganda. And so mm. my work there began in 2013. And that's really my main sort of um, global surgery focus. Um, and honestly, at first, like I, I was, you know, I was chief for seven years at Children's Hospital of Oakland, um, and it was actually last year that I asked to step down from that um, from that role, and actually cut down to 50% clinical time so that I could have 50% of my time to focus on my global health work, because it was my work in Uganda that I had slowly been moving forward but was not able to focus on as much as I as I wanted. So uh, I was very fortunate that my um, that my chair, uh, Tad Vale, and all of my pediatric orthopedic partners here at uh, UCSF were, were willing to allow me to, to do that, to go to a 50% model so right. that I could spend 50% of my time abroad. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, but over basically since 2013, then I've been building this, this program in Uganda, collaborating with a, a lot of folks locally there um, mm-hmm. to create to create the program, which you know I'll talk a little bit about um, in a moment, uh, and then also um, you know so that program mostly focuses on uh, research projects and and education, and also um, just this January it got interrupted by COVID unfortunately, but I've been working yeah. collaboratively with a couple other pediatric orthopedic surgeons um, to create a, a fellowship. Uh, so we have a pediatric orthopedic fellowship in Uganda oh. now um, oh, because that's the co- yeah. 
the College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa um, now have a fellowship exam. They didn't actually get, uh, you know, certified as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. So there's a group of us that are working with, you know, some of my friends and colleagues in Uganda to, to have this fellowship. So um, I think that those are sort of the major things. And so a lot of effort on teaching, a lot of effort on research and addressing, you know, unmet burden of disease uh, for mm-hmm. children in low-income countries, you know, focusing on uh, Uganda, and then right. really this huge emphasis on education and how do how do we um, how do we help and encourage and teach pediatric orthopedics um, to people within their own countries? Because um, so many times they have great residency training, but so much of that focus is on the operative management of adult problems and not right. so much on kids. And so really being able to bring that pediatric orthopedic knowledge and education to people is, is critical. Hmm. Oh, well, congratulations on all that. That oh, just, uh, I, I, I think it's too often we don't ask each other enough all of our accomplishments. And I think that that's just, you know, congratulations on all the work that you've done. And I do want to talk about the work that you're doing in Uganda and that mm-hmm. I've in researching your bio, I found out that you are the principal investigator for the Uganda Post-Injection Disability Prevention and Treatment Program, which is certainly a mouthful, and it sounds very good. So what is this program, and what are you investigating with this research project? Yes. So the first thing you should realize about me is I'm really terrible at like coming up with cool names for research projects. <laughs> so I'm not the person to come up with your like awesome an acronym for something. So don't that's not me, um, as you can tell by this name. So basically, um, this really started. So in 2013, I had, um, you know, I've had some really amazing mentors in my life, but one of them that's, you know, really been a huge force is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon by the name of Norgrove Penny, who's out of the University of British Columbia. He's based in Victoria. Mm-hmm. He used to live and work in Uganda. And when I really wanted to get involved in East Africa, it was him that, you know, his name was the one that kept coming up when I was asked people, um, you know, do you know anybody who does work in East Africa? And, and mm-hmm. so I found him at, I found him outside a meeting, I think it was the Academy meeting in 2013. Um, and I asked him, you know, if, if there was any opportunity for me potentially to go with him to Uganda sometime. And he said, Hey, I'm going in two months. Do you want to go? And I was like, absolutely. And, <laughs> and so that's really where I first went to Uganda. And it, we mm-hmm. were, we had, he had lived and worked in Uganda for six years. And so while we were there, we taught a course. Um, that's why, he, that's why he was going for that trip in the first place. And then we took some time and we traveled to some of the places that he had previously worked at when he lived there. And we went to a hospital called Kumi Hospital, which is, um, you know, a pretty remote um, area outside of, you know, about six hours outside of Kampala, which is the capital. And we saw that we went to this hospital that he had worked at and we saw this large group of kids who were running around playing soccer um, and they were all running with a very awkward gait. But it was like a pretty like they all had it. And, and we were like, what? what is happening here with these kids? Um, and so the the team that we were talking to said, well, this is a whole group of children with gluteal fibrosis and they're here for a surgical camp. We're operating on a hundred of them this week. Um, and so they're all here just waiting for surgery. And I was like, oh my God, I, I feel like I knew a lot about pediatric orthopedics, but I had never heard about gluteal fibrosis. Um, right. And so we started to ask some questions and, you know, they, they had, an understanding that it was probably from um, too many quinine injections for the treatment of malaria, uh, but mm. nobody had really studied that. And they hadn't, like, uh, as I asked more questions, there was a lot that they, they understood just anecdotally, but the, a lot of questions that were very much unanswered. So 
I started to learn a lot about gluteal fibrosis. And then what goes along, so gluteal fibrosis basically is a fibrotic infiltration of the gluteal muscles that results in a hip, the hip's inability to function normally. So they get right. stuck, they get stuck in, um, in uh, basically external rotation. They can't ab, they can't adduct their legs. Like the hips don't allow internal rotation and adduction. So when you go mm. into flexion, you get obligate external rotation and abduction. So if a child goes to squat, then their legs are completely out to the side. If they're sitting mm. in a chair, which sometimes they can't do, um, again, their legs are very far out to the side. It's quite disabling, actually. Um, and so that's caused by too many injections into the gluteal muscles um, or injection of, you know, of basically myotoxic medications. Right. Um, and then along with that is something called post-injection paralysis, which we are more familiar with because at least when we're taught in medical school to give injections in this country, we're taught to go in the upper outer quadrant, right, to avoid the sciatic mm -hmm. nerve. Unfortunately, that teaching is not, um, does not get to all the people that need it. And in a lot of countries, um, non-medical people give injections and medical people who maybe don't have the best training in injection techniques. And so the sciatic nerve can be injured either through direct trauma or the injection of, again, a neurotoxic agent that can mm -hmm. like slowly seep onto the nerve and cause problems. And so these kids who get um, those injections that damage the nerve, then they get an acute onset of a flaccid paralysis of the leg, like the sciatic nerve is injured. Um, yeah. And then if, if it doesn't recover, which in many cases it does not, then over time, they'll basically get what looks like an acquired clubfoot deformity, um, mm -hmm. and except for that it's a rigid deformity. And so as I was reading more about these two um, problems, which are actually unfortunately incredibly prevalent, post-injection paralysis is, is very common throughout many places in the world. Um, and then gluteal fibrosis is common in a variety of places as well, with most of the literature actually coming out of China and Taiwan. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and particularly in Uganda, it had not been studied. So to make a long right. story short, I found a public health problem, right, directly related to uh, inappropriate use of medications, usually for the treatment of malaria, because malaria mm -hmm. is so common um, that uh, nobody wants the child to die from malaria. So they go for mm -hmm. what they think is the strongest and most effective medication, which is an intramuscular injection. And so there's excessive use of these medications and often an inappropriate medication that are then causing these orthopedic disabilities. So a public health wow. problem causing an orthopedic disability. Um, and so I really felt like that was something that I needed to spend my time trying to better understand. So we said, we've set up this whole research program now, and I have phenomenal partners in Uganda. I have a research coordinator, a social worker, physical therapist, and a lot of wonderful orthopedic oh, wow. surgeons that I'm, that I'm working with um, on my projects there. Uh, and I've had the great opportunity to have some wonderful trainees from the United States participate with me. So Kristen Alves, who's, you know, a Harvard resident finishing up her fellowship at Boston Children's um, and some wonderful medical students here at UCSF, Amanda Riley, CU Song and others who have, you know, been on the ground with and for me in Uganda, helping with some of this mm -hmm. data collection and themselves learning about global health and global surgery. Um, mm -hmm. And so we put together a series of research projects um, looking at both you know, both the treatment of these conditions and how do we optimize care for those children who are already suffering from these conditions, but right. also, you know, again, coming from a public health background, how do we prevent this? Like, what are the problems 
um, that exist in the country that are leading to overuse of medication, inappropriate use of medication. Um, and so looking at everything from, you know, pharmacy regulation uh, to teaching of people who are giving injections to, you know, testing for malaria and confirming malaria diagnosis before and treatment is even given for malaria. So all of those things like the, you know, um, they're all affecting these kids. And if we can help the ones who already have it, but prevent future cases, then I'll feel like we accomplished something. Wow. I had no idea. Goodness gracious. That's I like literally had never even heard of gluteal fibrosis. Yes. And that's uh, yes. congratulations on all your work there. I just, I literally yeah. had no idea. So I, yeah. you have, I feel educated. Yeah. Oh, and then I have, I, I, and then I'm fortunate that there's a lot of, again, I, I work with a hospital called Corsu Rehabilitation Hospital, which has a whole team of really wonderful orthopedic surgeons. And together we're doing a variety of, um, of non-gluteal fibrosis or PIP projects, <laughs> including like vascularized fibula flap um, treatment for long segmental bone defects in children, which I give a particular shout out to because RJOS did provide us some funding for that. Um, well then, done, RJOS. Treatment. Yeah, thank you, RJOS. And then, uh, you know, late late or recurrent clubfoot, um, septic arthritis and chronic osteomyelitis. So a multitude mm -hmm. of different um, areas we have some research going in. And I think that I love that work so much because I think it's important questions that need answers. And I absolutely love working with my Ugandan colleagues, um, you know, I learn from them every day and I, I enjoy the opportunity to, you know, work with them on research methodology and creating that research infrastructure in the hospitals that I'm affiliated with there uh, mm -hmm. to try to expand the research work that they're doing, both to improve care to their patients, but also to show the world the work that they're doing um, right. and get that message out. We have a lot that we can learn from them. Mm. Oh, fantastic. And I know that there are so many things that we can achieve with global health, but I do want to talk about some of the concerns that some yep. surgeons express with global health. And I, I spoke about this with Dr. Antonia Chen when she was on uh, the She Can Fix It podcast, in that some critics say that medical missions, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, in which surgeons would visit resource poor areas, they operate for a week, they bring their own supplies, and then they leave. And the cons with this parachuting mission type of work is that you have to donate the expertise, time, and resources. The post-op follow-up is left to the local providers. You can't track clinical outcomes. And there's not as much emphasis placed on teaching of the local providers. So I was hoping you can provide with your expertise in global health, what, are, what do you say to these concerns? Yeah, I say amen. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I absolutely share those concerns. I think you actually right. spelled it out pretty well there. Um, I am definitely a person who speaks out actually against the traditional medical mission model of global surgery. I don't think there's mm -hmm. a place for it actually anymore in the world that right. we are living in. Um, so I think that although these trips really help uh, like the patients that they actually take care of, um, so I don't want to dismiss that important impact on that select number of patients. Mm -hmm. um, the trips too often like ignore the larger context um, and can actually serve to undermine the overall long-term care of the community. And right. so um, and that bigger concern is in addition to the ones that you already mentioned, like not having anyone to follow up on complications. If there mm -hmm. is a complication, is there somebody that can adequately take care of that person? Because right. a, a complication can render the patient worse than how they were to begin with, right? So, right. Um, you know, an arthritic knee that really needs a total joint 
is bad, but an infected total joint is even worse, right? So, mm-hmm. um, or or a club foot that is untreated that then gets treatment, you know, with a significant posterior medial release that then becomes dysvascular and requires an amputation in a place where there's no prosthetics available is right. a huge deal, right? And those so those downstream mm-hmm. consequences really need to be thought about and planned for. And I think too often when you fly in and you fly out, you you kind of miss those things. So um, mm-hmm. I think additionally, you know, you could take away resources from the local surgeons who are there. So you're taking their OR time, you're potentially taking their patients. Um, and honestly, mm-hmm. it can really undermine the respect from their communities. So if because if they can't do something, but these, you know, American surgeons can come in and do it, then it does mm-hmm. serve to undermine their credibility to their own people. Um, right. And I think that that's a that's a real problem that we have to be cognizant. And I think on an even bigger scale, it can really ultimately sometimes absolve local and national governments from their responsibility from their responsibility of creating these systems of care that are actually funded from within. Mm-hmm. Um, and that create create systems of care that can then take care of the broader community and not mm-hmm. just those you know few individuals that are selected for surgery during a mission trip. So right. I think that you know I think thankfully most people are moving into new models of global surgical care. Um, I, I think that you know not everybody can you know spend not everybody has the time to you know spend maybe doing some of the stuff that I was talking about in terms of, you know, long-term research, long-term education, doing fellowships, right. doing, you know, ongoing educational things. But if even if you have short periods of time, you can make it be something that doesn't undermine um, local efforts, local surgeons, and cause harm to the patients, mm-hmm. right? So right. Um, I think what's most important is that surgeons who want to do this work need to collaborate with local surgeons. Ideally, mm-hmm. you've been invited by the local surgeon as opposed, as opposed to like putting yourself upon them um, right. and that you first and foremost listen to them. Like, what is it that their community needs? What is it that they need as a surgeon? Like, do they need somebody to, you know, teach them a particular procedure that they never learned in their training and they have a lot mm-hmm. of patients that need that procedure? Do they need resources brought over? Like, do they have, they know how to do something? Like, total joints is a great example. I think a lot of surgeons know how to do total joints in a lot of countries but their parent, their patients can't afford the, the implant and their hospital, you know, won't let them implant it without the ability for somebody to pay for it. So I think right. that there's, there's some real opportunities to work collaboratively. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and then I think as visiting surgeons, you know, oftentimes people come in as like the authority um, and that power differential can really lead to a lot of problems. Um, and so I think, again, so much of it is working collaboratively with somebody local to focus on teaching more than doing um, mm-hmm. and and to help look at like the systems of care that are in place in a hospital and help give suggestions on how to improve follow-up or how to plan for managing complications or you know how to improve sterility in the OR. Like there's so many things that we can also participate in that are more than just I'm here to do a bunch of surgery and then I'm going to leave. Right. Um, and I think that all of us need to constantly remind ourselves to be listeners first um, and hear what the challenges are, hear what the social contexts are. And if you are going to do a bunch of surgery, it's really important to have somebody from the local community there um, because they understand the social context of these problems for patients and what the potential complications are, right? Like, again, like amputations, for example, if you have to have an amputation in the United States, that's devastating. 
but you would get right. a prosthesis, you'd have a highly functioning limb. That's not the case in a lot of places around the world, right? So you have mm -hmm. to understand what the potential consequences are and what that what that follow-up would be for that patient. So, um, and then I think that, it, you know, long-term commitment is huge and establishing relationships is huge. And then you might only go to a place once or twice a year, but you should be a resource for your colleagues in that place you go throughout the year. So, you know, that's right. one of the greatest things that we can do is, is help facilitate, you know, like just like when I don't know what to do for a patient here, I have all my mentors that I can reach out to. You know, mm -hmm. we, we wanna be we wanna be mentors and support for our surgeon colleagues around the world. And uh, many of them are, are quite isolated and don't have other people that they can talk to. So to mm -hmm. be that support is gonna be really important. So it's just, yeah, I, I think long-term commitment is is really crucial here. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, because mm -hmm. I think it's something that is a misconception. And I really think yes. that it's something that we actually need to be talking about and need to be understanding. And yep. I know that you have done so much with global health already, but I was hoping you could talk about your future goals and projects with regards to global health. Yeah, so um, that's a big question. And I think, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's hard right now in this age of COVID because um, yes. so many things for me right now are on hold, right? So I had three mm -hmm. trips over the next seven months planned for Uganda, none of which are going to happen. Um, oh, and so, so my short long, my short long term goal is just to not allow the work that we've all, you know, my my team has been working on to fall apart. Um, mm -hmm. And and I'm like I said, I'm really fortunate that I have a great team on the ground in Uganda, um, and so. Some of that short-term stuff is just changing our studies to, to change the follow-up, just like we're all doing on our studies here in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. But so if I think uh, in a post-COVID era, then my goals <laughs> really are, um, you know, in terms of the, the injection injury work that I was talking about, that's a, that's a main thing that I, I feel like um, is going to be a major focus over the next five or so years because, again, it's about how do we improve care for these kids and how do we create change on the national level uh, to prevent future cases from happening? And then beyond right. Uganda, where else is where, where else are kids um, suffering these disabilities? And how can we create that change in those countries as well? So that's one main, main focus. I, I love my research collaboration that we're doing in Uganda, and I'm excited to continue that with my colleagues there. Because um, I think that there's a lot of questions about optimizing treatment for kids with things like chronic osteomyelitis, untreated septic arthritis, recurrence, mm -hmm. uh, or late presenting club foot. And so continuing to work on those because I think that our experience there um, and our work collaboratively can, can help inform care for kids in other places where, you know, they don't get care on day one like we do mm -hmm. here in the United States, right? Um, so I think looking at those, you know, what are considered sort of neglected surgical diseases um, are, are going to be really important. And then I think beyond trying to answer specific pediatric orthopedic questions, my global health work, I, I hope really continues to be um, working collaboratively, not just with orthopedic surgeons, but all surgeons who are interested in improving access to care. And how do we affect change in terms of improving systems of care around the right. world for not just kids, mm -hmm. I mean, for, for adults as well, but obviously I'm particularly interested in children. So how do we work with um, local and national governments to create systems of care where kids can get the treatment that they need in a timely manner that's safe and effective surgery? And so I'm really fortunate to work with, you know, a number of people um, through the Global Initiative for Children's Surgery, 
Um, and so there's a huge international effort to, to move the needle on safe surgery for kids um, in low and middle income countries around the world. So that's exciting. Ugh. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all that work. And I Thank would you. like to talk about our final topic, and that is health equity. You yeah. are the director of not only global surgery, but also health equity. And so I was hoping you can describe for us what it means to be the director of health equity. And if you can also, once again, please humble brag about what you have accomplished with regards to health equity. Yeah, well, I mean, health equity just by definition is basic, is like a basic belief that everyone deserves the opportunity to attain their highest level of health. Um, and so to, to then be the director of health equity then is to try to lead programs within my division um, mm -hmm. and within my own personal research agenda that focus on on how do we optimize again how do we optimize the care that we provide and the access that exists in order for all children um, to be able to attain that highest level of health and not to live their life with an untreated disability mm -hmm. um, or an untreated you know orthopedic injury um, and I think that, you know, my, my work in this um, began, you know, after college, when I worked in public health, I was in a health equity program, which was, I, I had the incredible honor to work with some phenomenal women in the California Black Infant Health Program, which was an organization focused on reducing African American infant mortality reduction. I worked in the San Diego group. Um, and and it was a phenomenal opportunity to see you know public health in practice and and, and really advocating for health equity principles unfortunately right. in the united states there continues to be a huge disparity in both infant mortality and particularly maternal mortality for um for black infants and black moms and we have a lot of work to do in that area but that really set me on a path of understanding how to do some of this health equity work um, mm -hmm. I think another area just to acknowledge is that I work in a safety net hospital. So Children's Hospital of Oakland takes care of children, you know, throughout the upper half of California. And we take care of kids, you know, with without regard for insurance. And that's a really important thing for me to work at a hospital that mm -hmm. is a safety net hospital, because that is a fundamental principle of health equity, that everybody should have access to the same right. level of treatment. Um, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have been for the last, you know, more than a decade on the board of directors of the J. Robert Gladden Orthopedic Society, which is the orthopedic society focused on, you know, diversity and inclusion and improving the health, particularly of African-American communities and access to musculoskeletal mm -hmm. care for African-Americans in the United States and, and all people of color. Um, right. And so I've, I've loved my work um, with my colleagues on the JRGOS. And also um, to have been affiliated with Nth Dimensions, which is focused on recruitment and retention of underrepresented minorities and women into orthopedics that I've been involved in for a really long time and the last five years as a, as a mentor for the summer internship program that they have. Um, wow. And I think all of that work leads to, you know, we need to diversify our fields um, if we are to provide better care to all communities. And so I'm incredibly passionate about recruitment and retention of particularly underrepresented minorities and women into orthopedics, because I think our field will be the better for it. Um, and we'll be able to break down some of these barriers that exist in terms of um, quality uh, care for communities of color in the United States. So um, I focused a lot on, on my domestic research focuses more on um, issues of access to care. 
um, than it does necessarily specific orthopedic conditions, although I do research on specific orthopedic conditions, but uh, really passionate, again, locally, how do we improve access to care? What are barriers to accessing care? Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I've like started to get into work on um, access to interpreter services and how um, having somebody to be able to interpret actual medical um, interpretation improves outcomes. So, you know, right. it's fortunate to have an article published recently in JBJS about that. Congratulations. Um, and thanks. And then and then the other thing I mentioned before is just working with the Global Initiative for Children's Surgery, which, again, is a health equity, you know, oriented organization looking at how do we improve systems of surgical care for kids. So I think mm-hmm. some of those are some of the ways that um, that I try to bring health equity work into my into my life. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, if there's anybody out there who's passionate about this as well, like, please reach out because I think that this is the type of work that benefits from a lot of discussion and collaboration. Uh, and right. let's be honest, we have we have a lot of work in the United States to do around issues so of true. health equity so true. And, cer- and certainly around the world. So, yeah. And I know that you had mentioned that you earned your master's of public health at the mm-hmm. Harvard School of Public Health while and in addition to earning your doctorate of medicine from Harvard. And so I was hoping you can describe to us what it is that your MPH or your time at the School of Public Health taught you that you didn't get when you were in medical school. Yeah. So That's I a think... loaded question, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, I, I, I came to the public health degree a little bit different than some people. A lot of people decide to go to medical school and then add on the public health degree. I kind of came the other way. I was like, I added the medical degree onto my desire to get my public health degree. So I always Mm -hmm. knew I was going to do an MPH. I think that I had to think a lot about it, like before my orthopedic interviews to explain to people, because at the time, there was like two orthopedic surgeons in the country that had MPHs at the time. So Mm -hmm. it was, you know, I really had to justify it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think first and foremost, the MPH is really important uh, because it helps you understand research. It helps you critically evaluate studies that have been published because you understand the methodology um, and it helps you design good research studies. So I think that's where like just fundamentally that's been um, a, a part of that MPH degree that's been so helpful for me um, in my orthopedic research work um, is like the biostatistics and epidemiology side, right? So right. I can look at I can look at a study and, and like sort of um, better evaluate whether or not I should pay attention to it. Do you know what I mean? Um, And then beyond that, and and more importantly, um, I think that it really served, like the education that I got from my MPH gave me a lot of the building blocks for my global health work, uh, for my Mm -hmm. understanding of of the social determinants of health, um, for how to navigate sort of in that um, advocacy and policy space uh, in order to try to affect change on that larger level. So Um, And then honestly, it gave me some of the bestest friends. I just said the word bestest. It gave me some of the best friends uh, I've I've ever, I've ever had, um, where I have like a crew of people from my public health time that, um, you know, are in all different fields of medicine, some that just went the public health route, some that are practicing clinicians, but in all different fields. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we still talk and get together to this day and, um, and, you know, and, and have dialogue about how within each of our own fields can we create the change that we that we all desire to create. So, um, yeah, that was a, a huge impact on on my perspective, on my understanding and on my I think my ability to to create the kind of change that I'm trying to work for. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations on all that. Just that just sounds fantastic. 
My last question for you, Dr. Sabatini, yep. is what advice do you have for surgeons and surgeons in training? Yeah. I know it's a toughie. <laughs> um, so there's so many things, right? So I think, um, I think the most important thing is to create connection um, mm -hmm. and to um, reach out to people who are doing the things that you are interested in doing and to not be afraid right. to reach out, right? Like if I had never reached out to Norgrove Penny and asked him if I could tag along to Uganda, I would not be doing all the work that I'm doing in Uganda now. That is mm -hmm. just, I just, you know, it's like what gets me out of bed in the morning and I absolutely love to do it. Right. So right. I think that it's really important um, to not just be within yourself, but to really reach out and, and find friends and mentors um, who are working in the spaces that you want to work in, who are passionate about the work that you want to do. And, um, and that obviously doesn't have to be global health. That can be anything within your orthopedic fields, right? But to not mm -hmm. be afraid to reach out and to let people know that you're interested um, and to then follow through. I think follow through is, of course, going to be the most important thing in anything that we do. You don't want to ever say yes to something and then not not come through on it. So um, right. I think those are those are probably the things that that I, uh, and then if you are going to venture into the global surgery, global health space, um, my advice is to be a good listener first, uh, because listening is where you're going to learn um, where the needs are and what role you can actually play that will be effective um, mm -hmm. and helpful to those that you're trying to help. Um, and too often right. we don't listen, we don't listen enough. Um, mm -hmm. So listening is critical. Ugh, fantastic. Dr. Colleen Sabatini, thank you so much for joining us on the RJOS podcast. I've had an absolute blast. I learned about gluteal fibrosis. So I, there you brain go. Is, I'm so happy. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the RJOS podcast with Dr. Colleen Sabatini please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.rjospodcast.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Vennikirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. I would also like to thank the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society for allowing me to partner with them and share these stories. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe. <music>